Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Good morning, Grace. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4. While you're making your way there, I do want to let you know that if you liked the song that Chet was uh, sharing with us, Jesus Lives, you can get a free download of it if you uh, get online and look for Sovereign Grace Ministries. They have have a lot of free downloads of their music. Their philosophy of uh, worship music, they call it... uh, uh, take home theology they want you to they want to write songs that are rich with doctrine and theology that you can take with you wherever you go and sing about so that song jesus lives is free on there so if you want to get it and uh, listen to it in preparation for resurrection sunday then go for it all right let's pray father thank you that you are so good to us we have been singing about your goodness to us And we rejoice in that this morning. And it's so clear in the gospel that you sent your son to bring us to you. And we give you thanks for that this morning. That you bring us into your presence, Father. Uh, We can come into your presence, God, even when we see the darkness of our hearts because of your grace. And we thank you for that, God. We do pray for your grace, your common grace to be extended to those in Japan who one year ago today were experiencing an earthquake and tsunami. We pray your common grace for those that don't know you, God, but that you would still comfort them because you're a good God. And we pray, God, for the gospel to bear fruit and to grow in Japan. The believers that are there, God, may they share and reach out the hope that Jesus lives and they can live again one day even though they die. So I pray that you would empower the church there to share the gospel and to provide the hope of the gospel as well. Help us now as we look at your word, Father. Help me to preach and teach in such a way that you get glory and that your people understand your word and help me to understand your word more even as I'm preaching it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're going to be talking about peace, about having gospel-centered peace. And, and when I say you, uh, and I'm talking to you, I mean that you individually, but also you corporately. You can experience the peace of God in your life. So when I say that today, think about uh, how I'm talking to you, and I'm talking to you, okay? Remember the context from last week? Uh, we looked at two women were fighting in the church, Euodia and Syntyche, and Paul was writing to the church to a man named Syzygus, a loyal companion, true companion, and Clement and others, and said, help these women to agree in the Lord. We have to remember that context coming into today's passage, because unfortunately, or fortunately, we have paragraph divisions, and we tend to kind of disconnect. But Paul's train of thought is continuing here, as he has just told Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord, to get over their differences. Now he's going to return to this theme of rejoicing. And what Paul is going to drive home today is that as disciples of Jesus Christ, we can have peace in our lives. We can be peaceful. We can be full of peace because of the gospel. And the way that we do that is by rehearsing the gospel. If you've been with us in our exposition of Philippians, you know that I've been talking about the gospel every single week repeatedly. And Paul wants the Philippians to rehearse the gospel so that their joy would be unleashed 
Today, he's going to teach them how to rehearse the gospel so that the peace of God would be unleashed in their lives and that they would be, in fact, peaceful disciples. Here's our big idea today. Gospel-centered peace is unleashed when you rehearse the gospel. If you want the peace of God in your life, it comes by rehearsing the gospel. I say it's gospel-centered peace here because it comes through Jesus Christ. The only way that we can have true peace with God is through the gospel message. We're all born sinners. We need to be reconciled with God. To get peace with God because of our sin, we need Jesus Christ. And then after we become disciples, in order to get God's peace, we need Jesus Christ. We need the gospel. So to get gospel-centered peace, you have to rehearse the gospel. There is such a thing as peace, the peace of this world, where you can have peace of mind and peace of heart, I guess, and be apart from Jesus Christ. We'll see that in the book of Jonah in about a month when we, Lord willing, go there. We'll see that Jonah has peace, and he's running from God. He's asleep in the bottom of a boat and there's a big storm in the sea and he's sleeping like a baby because there is a peace that you can have apart from God, but it's not real peace, especially if you're a believer. We'll see in Jonah that God is relentless. He will hunt you down because he loves you so much. So there is a gospel-centered peace that you can have that can buoy you up in the midst of all of life's circumstances. And the way that you get it is by rehearsing the gospel by reviewing it, by remembering and rejoicing in all that God the Father is for you in his son, Jesus Christ. And I would argue that Jonah really didn't have peace, but you can look at people in your life and say, how can they have such peace when they're running away from God? There's an element of peace that they can have, but they're not really at peace. All right, look at verse four. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Paul wants the Philippians to rejoice again, to have their joy unleashed because of the gospel. We saw that in chapter 3, verse 1. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. See, Paul doesn't mind repeating himself. He says, Rejoice in the Lord, my brothers, to write the same things to you. It doesn't bother me. It's safe for you. Then he comes back here in chapter 4 and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, hey, rejoice. I don't mind writing it one more time because I want your joy in Jesus Christ to be unleashed in your life. And it comes through remembering the gospel which is everything that Paul's been talking about from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to chapter 4, verse 3. Paul was explaining the gospel to the Philippians. That true righteousness comes through Jesus Christ, through his works and not our works. It doesn't come from obedience to the law. It's this alien, foreign righteousness that God gives us He also talked in chapter 3 about sharing in Christ's sufferings, about longing for the resurrection, about passionately pursuing Jesus without being distracted, about longing for his return where he will transform our bodies and all of creation will be subject to the Lord. And we saw last week, Paul said the gospel, in fact, brings forgiveness and reconciliation in a church body. All of that, chapter 3, verse 1 to where we ended last week, was the gospel. Paul is preaching again to the Philippians. Reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. Creation will one day be reconciled. And we can experience that reconciliation now. 
So coming off that, chapter 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. He comes back to it here in chapter 4 and wants them to rejoice in the Lord because of everything he's just written. That's gospel rehearsal. Don Carson says, if we fail to respond with joy and gratitude when we are reminded of these things, the gospel, it is either because we have not properly grasped the depth of the abyss of our sinful natures and of the curse from which we have been freed by Jesus, or because we have not adequately surveyed the splendor of the heights to which we have been raised. He says, if our joy isn't unleashed when we hear the gospel, it's because we don't understand the depravity and the deadness of sins that God has saved us from, nor do we understand the glorious heights that Jesus has raised us up to. But he says, when you understand those two truths, he says, your joy in God should be unleashed. And that's why Paul writes again, rejoice in the Lord. He knows that when they rejoice in the Lord and rehearse the gospel, then God's peace will actually come. Let me show you where I get that. Because it doesn't look like this verse, these verses and paragraphs go together, but the peace of God is kind of the theme that stitches it together. Let me show you in verse 5 where I think Paul is talking about the peace of God. Look at verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. I actually prefer other translations here on this verse. They capture the idea of this Greek word better. Most translations, rather than reasonableness, which is what the ESV uses, use gentleness. And I think even better than gentleness is selflessness. I think that's closer to what Paul is saying. He's saying, let your gentleness or let your selflessness be known to everyone. He is calling the Philippian church to be selfless and to give up their rights which is what he challenged them to do in chapter 2. He is calling the Philippians to be gentle and not assert their rights and demand their way in every situation. He is calling the Philippian church to be gentle and not to fight to get their own way, but to be gentle with everyone. Think about how this is related to the peace of God. Peace, God's peace will be unleashed in our lives, in our families, in our homes, in our workplaces when we aren't selfish, when we don't demand our ways. Imagine, what about the remote control in your house? You're trying to decide what to watch. Is there peace then? Unless there's one show that everybody loves, is there peace when several kids have the remote control in their hand? But if everyone gave up their rights and they were selfless and gentle, instead of fighting and arguing and bickering and saying, you know what, I'm going to let you watch the show that you want to watch. You know what, we're going to go two players on this PlayStation and I'm going to split the screen in half. I want to be selfish and have the whole screen to myself and play the game myself. But you know what, brother, you can come play with me. Wouldn't God's peace be unleashed then? Do your kids ever fight over the PlayStation or fight over the last of the cereal? really good cereal, you know, not the healthy kind. They ever fight over the last donut? They ever fight over the last piece of pizza? You do this at work? Imagine God's peace being unleashed in your home and in your workplaces. If people said, you know what? You can have the last donut. Go ahead. You can have the last slice of pizza. I mean, God's peace would be unleashed big time if we all started saying, you know what? I don't want my own way. I'll let you have it. What about here in this church? If we quit demanding our way and we gave up all our preferences and wishes and desires for how this church should be, wouldn't God's peace be unleashed here? 
I mean, if we're preaching the gospel, if we're baptizing people, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, and we're making disciples of all nations, then I think we're on track as a church, right? So we really shouldn't be complaining otherwise, should we, if we're doing those things? That's not to say that you can't express yourself. If we came in here one Sunday morning and these walls are painted hot pink, I hope you would complain to me because I need people on my side then because I wouldn't want hot pink walls. But at the end of the day, if we had hot pink walls, we just got to get over it and let it go, don't we? Because we're baptizing people, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, we're making disciples of all nations, we're preaching the gospel. I'm not saying that you can't express yourself. Here's the problem, though. We all want our own way, whatever situation we find ourselves in, right? We've bought the lie of Burger King that you can have it your own way. And the reason we want our own way is because we're right, right? That's why we want our own way. But imagine how God's peace would be, would be unleashed in your life if you didn't demand your way every single time. What about in your marriage? You want God's peace to be in your marriage? Give up your rights. Become a servant. Gospel-centered peace is unleashed when you rehearse the gospel. Well, how do you do that? How do you rehearse the gospel and get God's peace unleashed in your life when you want your own way? How do you do that? You, you say something like this. I can rejoice in this circumstance because I have all that I need in Jesus. The gospel says that all the promises of God are yes and amen for me in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1. He is all I need. I am now free to imitate my Lord and give up my rights like him in order to bring joy to others. I am free to serve others and be gentle and kind even when they don't deserve it because God in Christ has been so kind to me when I didn't deserve it. That's how you rehearse the gospel when you want your own way. And when you do that, God's peace will be unleashed in your life. Now, Paul continues this thought here at the, in the last half or the last part of verse 5 through verse 7. So look there at verse 5. Paul says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul's reminding the Philippian church that the Lord is near. Now, he could be referring to the fact that Jesus' return is near because he just talked about that at the end of chapter 3. But I think what Paul is saying is that the Lord is near. The Lord is present with you, Philippi. When you gather together, the Lord is near. He is with you individually. He is with you corporately. And because Jesus is near, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. Remember Yodia and Syntyche, the two women fighting? Paul is saying, hey, Yodia, the Lord is near. Syntyche, the Lord is near. Remember that when you get together and you're squabbling in Grace Hall over something, remember that the Lord is near. But notice how he segues from the Lord is near to do not be anxious about anything. You see, when you realize that the Lord is near, that he is with you in your life, you realize there's no need to worry about anything. There's no need to be anxious about anything because Jesus is right here with me. I love what Paul Miller says about anxiety. He says, instead of connecting with God in prayer, our spirits fly around like severed power lines, destroying everything they touch. 
That's what happens when we're anxious and we worry about things. We're like these severed power lines that are flopping all over the place, destroying everything that they come in contact with. That's what happens in our lives when we worry and when we're anxious about things. We're out of control. So here's how you rehearse the gospel and see God's peace get unleashed in your life when you're tempted to worry. You say something like this. I do not have to worry or be anxious about anything because God loves me. I am his child. And as a father has compassion on his children, God will have compassion on me and help me. Psalm 103. He will and has provided everything I need for life and godliness. Second Peter 1 Peter 1.3. He is my father and he wants me to cast all of my cares on him because he cares for me. 1 Peter 5.6-7. See, when you rehearse the gospel like that, God's peace will be unleashed in your life. And the gospel is so powerful that when you do that, it will cause your pride to wilt. It will cause your pride to wilt up when you rehearse the gospel. Now, you may be thinking, wait a minute, Benji. What are you talking about pride? You were just talking about being anxious. And now you're just dragging pride into this? Yes, I am. Because when you worry, you act like you're sovereign and in control. And that's pride, isn't it? When you worry and obsess over something, you're saying, God, you're not in control. I'm in control. I know you created Saturn, and that was pretty cool, but I know how to run my life in this situation. That's pride, isn't it? But when you pray, which is what Paul is asking the Philippians to do, when you pray, you affirm that God is sovereign and that he is in control. You go to the person, the only person, who can change your situation. See, when you fixate on things and people and situations, you will not experience the peace of God. You have to focus on God in prayer. When you obsess over the fact that that person, you know, made you angry or did something to you, you won't experience the peace of God. Do any of you do that? Has anyone ever been offended by someone here and they have hurt you, rightly hurt hurt you maybe, and you obsess over that? Does that bring the peace of God? Do you sit there and think, oh, I can't stand that person? Oh, peace. Nobody does that, do we? Our blood boils, anger comes. And Paul is saying, you know what? Don't be anxious, don't worry, don't fixate on all these other things, but in prayer. Notice the contrast there. Don't be anxious, but pray. Let's look at prayer from these verses. First, Paul says, pray in everything. The Greek word here literally means everything. You don't have to be a Greek scholar. It means everything. I think Paul is saying, pray about everything. If you're going on a trip and you want to pray for protection, pray about it. You got to test at school, pray about it. Got a situation going on at work, pray about it. Paul is saying, pray about everything in your life that would make you anxious or worried. Just take it to the Lord in prayer. Pour your heart out to him. It doesn't matter what it is. Paul is saying, just pray. See, our problem is that too often we talk to our friends, our spouse, people at church, and that's good. We need to do that. But so often we talk to other people about situations and we never talk to the Lord about it. Pray about everything. Then Paul says, with prayer, supplications, and requests. We could attempt to break all of these phrases down, but I think Paul is just saying, pour your heart out to God. Tell him everything. Ask him to intervene. Call on him. Cry out to him. 
Don't analyze prayer and say, oh, Lord, now I come to you in supplication or was that supplication and now I'm requesting. I don't know what I'm doing here. Don't analyze it. Just pour your heart out to him. He's listening. He's your father. Just ask him. Pray about everything. Remember, two women are fighting in the church. And I think Paul would be saying to Yodia and Syntyche, pray for each other. I've learned over the years that as I pray for people, my feelings for them begin to change in a good way. Don't pray for them like David's imprecatory prayers that you read about in the Psalms, like, Lord, dash your enemies' heads against the rocks. Don't pray for people that way. Pray the gospel for them. If you've got an issue with someone, there's tension the thing that will help cure that process and cure your feelings for them is you when you begin to pray for them. That you genuinely become care, you genuinely care for them, it'll change your heart towards them. I've seen it in my life. If there's an issue with someone, if I begin praying for them, my heart towards them begins to change. Then Paul says, pray with thanksgiving. When you thank God for all that he has done for you in your prayers, you'll be rehearsing the gospel. Here's how you rehearse the gospel in prayer with thanksgiving. And you, and, and you should do it for the physical things. Thank you, Lord, for our food. Thank you for our car, for our home, a job, etc. Do that. But so often, I think we stop just there with the physical instead of thanking God for the spiritual things. Here's how you rehearse the gospel in prayer and thanksgiving for those spiritual things as well. Thank you, Father, that you have caused me to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God as it shines forth in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4. That you have raised me up from the deadness of my trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. That you have transferred me out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son, Colossians 1. That you made him who knew no sin to become sin for me, that I might become the righteousness of God in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says, pray with thanksgiving. Thank him for the food, but thank him for the spiritual food that he gives you. Praying God's word and rehearsing the gospel produces thanksgiving, which in turn produces more praying and unleashes the peace of God in our lives. Gospel-centered peace is unleashed when you rehearse the gospel, and you can do that in prayer. Now look at verse 7. Paul says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we rehearse the gospel in prayer, It unleashes God's transcendent peace. It's this peace that is transcendent. It is outside this world. You will experience the peace of God in the watching world that doesn't know the gospel or doesn't know Jesus will scratch their heads and try to figure out how can you have so much peace in the midst of this turmoil that you're experiencing. It's because God's peace can't be put into a category that the world understands. And the reason why is because it says it will guard our hearts and minds. This word guard is a military term. It means that God's peace will protect and stand guard and be on guard duty to catch any kind of anxiety or worry that would attack us. When you rehearse the gospel, God's peace rises up like an army to catch any anxiety or worry that would consume your heart. And consume your mind. One commentator said this. Prayerful people are peaceful people. 
They're at peace with God. They're at peace with their situation. They're at peace with other people. D.A. Carson says, I've yet to meet a chronic warrior who enjoys an excellent prayer life. If you're constantly worrying about things, you probably don't have an excellent prayer life. Now, if you're worrying, go to pray. Go to prayer. Pray, but seek the Lord. I love what Paul Miller says in his book, A Praying Life. And if you want to learn more about prayer, the best book I've ever read on prayer is A Praying Life by Paul Miller. I highly, highly, highly recommend it to you. He's the one that had the quote earlier about the power lines. Uh, One of his, this is for free. The first service didn't get it. He said he does his best parenting in prayer. It's an awesome concept to think about. This is what he says about learning to pray. He says, learning to pray doesn't offer you a less busy life. It offers you a less busy heart. See, when you learn to pray, your life is going to be chaotic and out of control like it normally would be. The difference is that your heart is not chaotic and out of control, that you have peace of heart and peace of mind, even though your life is chaos. So that's what learning to pray does. It's not going to wave a magic wand over your life and give you this peaceful life. No, you're going to have a crazy life because you live in a crazy fallen world. But if you learn to pray, you can have a less busy heart. So Paul is reminding the Philippians here that thanksgiving is crucial in prayer, that when they are rehearsing the gospel by thanking God for all the many promises in his word, then it brings God's peace, his military peace that acts like a sniper and shoots down anxiety and worry. That's what thanksgiving does. Thanksgiving guards our heart and it helps us to absorb God's word. When we are thankful in prayer, it's guard, it guards our hearts and minds and opens us up to receive God's word, which is where Paul's going to go in verse 8 in just a minute. He's going to bring up God's word. But thanksgiving and praise and rejoicing in the Lord actually prepares your heart to receive the promises of God's word. I heard an old preacher say it like this once. He said, praise is the plow that prepares the heart for the planting of the promises. I'll never forget. I'll never forget it. And I, he said it over and over in his sermon. He said, actually said it like this. Praise is the plow that prepares the heart for the planting of the promises. And it stuck with me all these years. But it's so true. When you rejoice in the Lord, when you pray with thanksgiving... It's like a plow that is preparing the ground of your heart for the promises of God's word to get planted in your heart. And when that happens, it blossoms into God's peace. Now let me show you where I believe Paul is talking about God's word. Look at verse 8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I think Paul is talking about God's word here. Say, these are the things you need to be thinking about. And as a litmus test for us, I think that whatever our minds naturally drift to reveals who we worship or what we worship. Whatever our minds naturally drift to as we're driving to work probably reveals either the idols of our heart or reveals Jesus Christ is our treasure. As you're going through Target 
or wherever you buy your groceries. What does your mind drift to? What does your mind drift to as you're just sitting on your back porch enjoying God's creation? It's usually a litmus test for the idols of your heart or if your mind drifts to the Lord, then you realize that he's your treasure. Now Paul here is saying, let your mind drift to God's word. Begin to take in God's word because you're rejoicing in the Lord, because you're giving thanks. It's preparing your heart to receive God's word. And I think that's what Paul's talking about in verse 8. Where do we find anything true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, or worthy of praise? We find these things in God's word. And Paul says, your mind needs to drift naturally to God's words, to those things. And for Yodia and Syntyche, the two women fighting in the church, their mind is naturally going to drift in anger and frustration for one another. And Paul is saying, no, let your mind drift to God's word, to meditate upon God's word, to think about God's word. One of the ways that you can do this, and we started it uh, in January, is with our fighter verses. They're in your bulletin, in in your sermon notes page. It's not too late to start. We're wrapping up Psalm 103 this coming week. Just to take God's word, there's an app for it on your phone. If you're, uh, you know, good with technology, there's an app for it. But memorize God's word. Meditate on it. The Hebrew word for meditate usually used is the Hebrew word hagah. We saw this in Philippians 2. We'll rehearse it here. It means to vocalize or mutter or to murmur under your breath. It means to vocalize what your mind is preoccupied with. What's in your mind comes out of your mouth. This Hebrew word hagah, which means to meditate, is used in reference to a dove cooing in Isaiah 38. Or a lion growling over its prey. Or in Isaiah 16, the people are moaning and muttering for raisin cakes. Their mind is so occupied with, for food, with food, that they begin to talk about it. That's what it means to meditate. That you say things like, you know, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. And you're, you're driving to work and you're saying the steadfast love of the Lord. Oh, it's from everlasting to everlasting. His love is steadfast. Oh, his love is steadfast. Man, it is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. That's what it means to meditate. You begin muttering it. You've been talking about it. J.I. Packer explains meditation in his book, Knowing God. He says, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is demanding but simple. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. Meditation is a lost art today, and Christian people suffer grievously from the ignorance of the practice. Meditation is the activity of calling to mind and thinking over and dwelling on and applying to oneself the various things that one knows about the works and ways and purposes and promises of God. It is an activity of holy thought, consciously performed in the presence of God, under the eye of God, by the help of God, as a means of communion with God. Its purpose is to clear one's mental and spiritual vision of God and to let his truth make its full and proper impact on one's mind and heart. It is a matter of talking to oneself about God and oneself. It is indeed often a matter of arguing with oneself, reasoning oneself out of moods of doubt and unbelief into a clear apprehension of God's power and grace. 
Its effect is ever to humble us as we contemplate God's greatness and glory and our own littleness and sinfulness and to encourage us and reassure us, comfort us in the old, strong Bible sense of the word as we contemplate the unsearchable riches of divine mercy displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Meditation is a means of communion with God as we think about his word and we recite it on our lips. Too often, our minds drift to the things that we're anxious about and that we worry about. But it's when you rehearse the gospel, you begin to meditate on what you know about God and meditate on his word that you have communion with God and then God's peace comes to you. That gospel-centered peace that guards your hearts and minds, as Paul says, in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, that's gospel-centered peace. And it comes as we do what Packer said. We argue with ourselves. We reason ourselves out of moods of doubt and unbelief into a clear apprehension of God's power and grace. That's rehearsing the gospel. That's preaching the gospel to yourself. Do, do any of you ever feel like, I just don't think God loves me today? Like you had a really bad day the day before and you wake up and your sin is right there. Anybody ever have those days? Am I the only one? Because I had one this morning. I just like, God, do you love me? How can you love me, God? I don't feel it. So I had to reason myself, I had to argue myself out of it. I had to preach the gospel to myself this morning and say, no, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. That means, Benji Magnus, that you cannot change his love for you because it is from everlasting to everlasting and you can't squeeze in there in the middle and change his love for you. You have to preach the gospel to yourself and rehearse it. And when I did that and when you do that, then gospel-centered peace will be unleashed in your life. And I said, it's true. God loves me in spite of how I've been the last week. That's how it works. When you meditate on God and his word, when you set your mind on things above, when you rehearse the gospel, It centers you back in the gospel. In the Navigator's little booklet on meditation, I love the picture they give here of what meditation is. About, you know, thinking on the things that are lovely and excellent and pure and worthy of praise. He says, meditation is chewing. It is like the graphic picture of a cow and her process of mastication, bringing up previously digested food for renewed grinding and its preparation for assimilation. Meditation is pondering various thoughts by mulling them over in the mind and heart. It is the processing of mental food. We might call it thought digestion. I love that. Thought digestion, chewing upon a thought deliberately and thoroughly, thus providing a vital link between theory and action. What metabolism is to the physical body of a cow, meditation is to your mental and spiritual life. See, meditation is not an emptying of your mind like you know Eastern philosophies. Meditation is actually a filling up of your mind with the word of God and with the gospel. And when you fill your mind up with God's word and you're rehearsing the gospel, there's a natural segue to gospel obedience. Look at verse 9. Paul says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. 
Paul concludes this section here by talking about gospel-centered obedience. He he picks up this theme of imitation, which he mentioned in chapter 3, about imitate me, follow me as I follow Christ. Here he says, imitate me. He says, what you've learned from God's word, do it. What you've received from God's word, do it. What you heard in God's word, do it. Paul says, what you've seen lived out in my life from God's word, do it. I think Paul is saying, practice what you've heard preached Practice what you preach. Practice what you've heard preached from my life, Paul is saying. What happens when believers take what they've heard preached from God's word in Sunday school, on the radio, Sunday morning from the pulpit, on Sunday night, in your devotionals, in your Bible studies? What happens when God's people take his word that they've heard preached and taught to them and they begin to live it out? They begin to be obedient. They begin to practice these things. They're doing the practicing. It's them because they've heard God's word. What happens? Paul says, the God of peace will be with you. God will be, you want to experience God's presence in your life. You take the truths that you know in his word and you obey them by his grace. But you obey them. Remember, Yodia and Syntyche here, two women fighting. And he's saying, you know what? Practice everything that I've just told you, ladies, and there'll be peace in the church. God is present in his word. And when believers are obedient to his word and live lives synced up with the gospel, they can expect nothing less than the God of peace himself. What's going on in your world today? Do you need some of God's peace? Do you need some gospel-centered peace? Do you need that transcendent peace that comes in like a military sniper to take out anxiety and to take out worry? You can have that. When you rejoice in the gospel message, all that God is for you and his son, when you live selfless lives, when you show gentleness to everyone, when you don't demand your way in whatever situation you're in, you'll experience God's peace. When you pray, specifically here, when you pray his word, when you ponder his word, when you meditate on the gospel, and when you practice his word, when you sync your life up with the gospel message, then you will experience the peace of God gospel-centered peace that's rooted in Jesus Christ is unleashed when you rehearse the gospel. May God give us the grace to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wonderful word. Um, I probably could have done a whole series on these two paragraphs. It's so rich. But Father, I pray that you would make us a church that rejoices in the gospel, that we rehearse the gospel over and over again on the days when we feel that you don't love us, when we feel that we're not forgiven. God, will we meditate on your word, come back to it, to chew on it, think about it, to let your word be sovereign over our lives and our hearts and minds and not our own thoughts. And then may you get glory as we rehearse the gospel and put the spotlight on your son, on his life and death and resurrection. Help us to practice what we know from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.